Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. At 2 a.m. on Wednesday, September 16, 2015, Police Chief Dave McNeil arrived with his deputy at the home of Dwight and Susan Campbell in Stellarton, Nova Scotia. The body of their daughter had just been discovered near the base of a bridge that crosses the Halifax Harbor. The anguish from delivering this information weighed heavily on Chief McNeil's face as he spoke at a press conference later that morning. Chief McNeil would later describe this day as the most difficult day of his 22-year career. This pain would be felt throughout the province and ripple across the country. A family had tragically lost their daughter a small community lost one of its most cherished members, and a police force had lost a valued officer. This is the murder of Constable Catherine Campbell, and this is True North True Crime. Welcome to episode 12 of True North, True Crime. We hope you're having a safe commute, quietly working at your desk, or diligently cleaning your home while you listen to this episode. Yeah, and as always, we ask that you share True North, True Crime with a friend to help spread the word about the podcast. If you haven't already, those five-star reviews on Apple are really helpful with our visibility, so if you feel inclined to take a second to rate us, we would really appreciate it. So this episode is going to be discussing the death of an off-duty police officer, 36-year-old Constable Catherine Campbell, who was murdered in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 2015. We compiled this episode by using publicly available court documents, police reports, as well as a bunch of news articles. This story created shockwaves across Canada, obviously due to the fact that Catherine worked in law enforcement. However, the more we looked into this case it became apparent that there is a lot to be angry about here. As we explore this episode, we want to be mindful that a family has lost a daughter and a community has lost a cherished member. So this episode takes place in Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
But before we talk about Halifax, we want to acknowledge that the people of Nova Scotia suffered a massive tragedy this spring. On April 18th, 2020, while the world was suffering through the loss and fear surrounding COVID-19, an armed gunman went on a shooting rampage throughout the province. He murdered 22 people and injured three others. The gunman was eventually killed by the RCMP. Words will never be enough to heal the pain that the people of Nova Scotia have suffered with this tragedy. Here at True North True Crime, we want to say that we are with you. We mourn with the people of Nova Scotia, as we know our entire nation does. Halifax is the capital of the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. Halifax is located on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. The city of Halifax has a population of just under half a million residents. The eastern-facing Halifax Harbour has been an economic hub for the Atlantic provinces. Because of the harbour's accessibility to the Atlantic Ocean and thus Europe and beyond, Halifax is a major part to the world supply chain. Halifax is also home to all forms of Canadian military, including a major dockyard and naval base. Yeah, and Halifax also has a couple of major Canadian universities, those being Dalhousie and St. Mary's. Nova Scotia is an absolutely beautiful province uh, with major tourist destinations like the Cabot Trail and Peggy's Cove. I actually lived there as a kid, and I have fond memories of the rich culture and community feel of the province. For listeners hoping to get a reference point, Nova Scotia is the cool number seven shaped peninsula that hangs off of the eastern side of Canada. At least that's how I saw it when I was a kid. Its nearest American states would be Maine or New Hampshire. Halifax suffers with crime like most major Canadian cities, but its murder rate in recent years is shockingly low. According to Stats Canada, there were only three homicides in Halifax in 2019. I actually had to look that number up a couple of times because I thought it was wrong. Yeah, well, it's, it's a quiet, friendly, low-key place most of the time. So Catherine Campbell grew up in the small town of Stellarton, Nova Scotia, located in Pictou County. Uh, if I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. The town currently has a population of just 4,000 people. Stellarton is a mining town and is also the headquarters of Sobeys, a Canadian grocery store chain. Overall, it looks like a pretty ideal small town to grow up in. Catherine was born to her parents Dwight and Susan at Aberdeen Hospital on January 15, 1979. She was the middle child of three. Catherine is described as a warm, kind, outgoing, friendly, and giving person. When Catherine was just 26, she joined the Stellarton Volunteer Fire Department. As the years went on, her desire to help others grew, so she attended the police academy. After graduating, she was offered a position with the Truro Police Department at 30 years old. Truro is a town located about an hour's drive from Halifax and about 40 minutes from Stellarton. In June of 2015, Catherine got a new apartment in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, which is a former city but now community of the Halifax Regional Municipality. Now that's a lot of cities and towns, so let's just summarize for a second. Catherine grew up in Stellarton, got hired in Truro, but recently moved to Dartmouth, which is basically a suburb of Halifax. In 2015, Catherine was thriving. She was 36, had a career she loved, she had family, she had friends, and she was respected by her community and her co-workers. So, what went wrong? At around 6.45 a.m. Thursday, September 10th, 2015, Catherine arrived home from Truro to her apartment on Windmill Road in Dartmouth. She had just finished an overnight shift, 
After a stressful week at work, Catherine was looking forward to a few days off and some R&R. She arrived home, hung up her police uniform, and settled in for the evening. When she awoke later in the day, she fed her two cats, cracked open a beer, and hopped onto her laptop on her couch. During the evening, she messaged a former love interest on and off for a few hours. They talked about meeting up again, but decided not to. This was around 11.30 p.m. At around 1 a.m. on the morning of September 11th, Catherine decided to head to a bar in downtown Halifax. She made no plans to meet anyone. Instead, she decided to fly solo and blow off some steam after a long week of police work, so she called a cab and headed to downtown Halifax. At 5.30 a.m. on the morning of Monday, September 14th, three days later, Catherine did not show up for her shift with the Truro Police Department. Missing work was not in Catherine's character. She loved her job and was reported to be an excellent and diligent officer, so her absence was immediately considered suspicious. As the investigation into where Catherine was amped up, it was noted that her phone was not receiving calls. Also, her friends and colleagues had reported that they had not heard from her in days. Her parents were contacted at 9 a.m. by Truro Police Department, but they had not heard from her. In a public plea, her mother stated the following. Please. Please get in touch with Halifax police because, as you can imagine, her family is going through hell. Her family is heartbroken. We just want to know where she is, and we want her to get home. Even the mayor of Stellarton issued a statement by saying, I'm shocked. The whole town. Everybody is hoping it's going to end well. Because she went missing in Halifax, the Halifax Police Department took up the investigation. They sent two constables to her apartment. The following is an excerpt from Constable Cheeseman's notes. I observed empty beer cans in the trash. Her daytimer was on the fridge showing her schedule, and it indicated that she was due to work that morning. And I noted that it indicated that she appeared as though she was aware that she had to attend work that day. And then in the living room, I had two beer cans on the coffee table. One appeared to be full. One appeared to be empty. An apple, MacBook on the sofa, and the television was on. I noted her Truro Police Department patrol jacket hung over the chair in the dining room. Car keys hung on a hook next to the entry door. Constable McCulley advised that her apartment key was not on the car key chain. I took note of the closet. It was a storage closet. Cat litter box was dirty. Cat feces on the floor next to the box, indicating the litter box had not been cleaned for a few days. Spare bedroom bed was made, room was neat and tidy. Bathroom, neat and tidy. Master bedroom, alarm clock on. I noted Q104 was on the radio station. Bed was made, circulating fan was on. At the foot of the bed, clothing was on the floor. I noted that some of the clothing on the floor was folded and some was not. Flip-flops at the door were spread apart from one another, possibly due to the cats, I thought. And... Then her vehicle was parked in the parking garage in spot number 34. I provided that the temporary plates were on the car, as well as the fact that there was two volunteer firefighter plates in the trunk of the vehicle. There was an energy drink in the console along with a cigarette package in the driver's side door. Other officers working the case were able to analyze her computer. Her last search was for Bob's Taxi Company. According to taxi records, Catherine had taken a cab to the Alehouse Pub in downtown Halifax. The cab picked her up at 12.44 a.m. 
and dropped her off at the ale house at 1.08 a.m. The cab driver was interviewed and made the following observations about Catherine. He said that she was upbeat and chatty. He stated that she told him she was a Truro police officer and was headed out to the bar after a stressful week. When he dropped her off, she asked for his business card so that she could call him for a ride home. She never made that call. Police would then view and obtain CCTV footage from inside the alehouse recorded during early morning hours of September 11th. The footage from inside the bar would help police get a more complete picture of Catherine's night. Surveillance video from the alehouse shows Catherine meeting an unknown man. The video shows Catherine and the man dancing and kissing and embracing each other at the alehouse between 3 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. Bar staff had to tell them to cool it on a couple of occasions. In the video, Catherine Campbell and the man leave together. The pair then get into a taxi outside of the alehouse. Bar staff would later identify the man to Halifax police as a former employee of the bar. His name is Christopher Garnier. So who is Christopher Garnier? In 2015, Christopher Garnier was 27 years old. He was born on November 30th, 1987, in Calgary, Alberta. He is the only child of his parents, Vincent and Kimberly. Christopher completed high school at Memorial High School in Sydney Mines, Nova Scotia, in 2006. During his early to mid-teenage years, Christopher Garnier was enrolled in the Royal Canadian Air Cadets. When he was 19, he moved to Banff, Alberta and worked at Banff Fire and Safety for two years. Upon returning to Nova Scotia, Christopher attended firefighting school in Waverly, Nova Scotia. While there were no firefighting jobs open at the time of his graduation in the Halifax region, Christopher volunteered as a firefighter in the municipality of Hammonds Plains. Over the years, Christopher was employed at Good Life Fitness and various restaurants. On September 10, 2015, he had just started work with a company in Dartmouth testing and installing fire alarm systems. So basically, the day he met Catherine at the bar, he had just started a new job. In addition to this, Christopher worked with his father at his father's company, which provided occupational health and safety services. So that's the broad strokes of who Christopher Garnier is. So let's talk about what led him to the alehouse that night. Yeah, so September 10th was a pretty big day for him, obviously, because he had just started that new job. But he had also just broken up with his girlfriend, Brittany. They had been living together and... Christopher agreed to move out. The couple, who had met on Tinder about a year earlier, had fought over Christopher possibly texting another woman and him not being honest about it. Christopher had also been financially stressed for some time leading up to their breakup. Christopher made arrangements with his friend Mitch DeVoe to stay at his house on McCulley Street as he moved out of the residence he shared with his ex-girlfriend Brittany. Yeah, apparently him and Mitch had met in like grade 7 or something, so they were really long-time friends. On September 10th, 2015, Christopher and his friend Mitch drank alcohol and smoked some weed. Mitch tried to cheer Christopher up regarding the end of his relationship with Brittany. He prepared his pull-out couch for Christopher to sleep on. After drinking and smoking at Mitch's place, the pair went to a bar in downtown Halifax called The Ale House. They grabbed a booth and continued to drink. Mitch would eventually leave the alehouse and sadly end up in the Halifax Regional Police drunk tank. Yeah. Christopher would stay at the alehouse, dancing and hanging out with Catherine, whom he had just met. 
And according to bar staff and taxi company records, Catherine and Christopher would leave the alehouse around 3.30 a.m. together and head to Mitch's apartment on McCulley Street. So obviously this was a huge lead for the Halifax Police Department investigation. They now have a name of a person. They now have um, video, like CCTV footage of Catherine that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Not only that, but because of taxi records, they have an address. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, Christopher didn't live there. Right. So they were trying to find a Christopher Garnier. So police made their way to any former known residence of Christopher Garnier. They also dispatched a unit to Mitch's apartment on McCulley Street, where they obtained a statement from Mitch at 11.30 a.m. on September 15th. Yeah, Mitch stated that he got really drunk on the night of September 10th into the 11th. He got placed in the drunk tank, and he doesn't remember much about the night. But he did remember setting up the sofa bed for Christopher. When Mitch returned to his apartment at 9.30 a.m., which is the classic time when you get released mm-hmm. from the drunk tank. They give you your shoelaces back and an Egg McMuffin. Why do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but he noticed when he got back to the apartment that there was something off with the sofa bed. It had been put back together, um, but it, it didn't look like it was fitting correctly. And then he also noticed that Christopher was sleeping on the sectional in the front room. At about 11 a.m., Christopher would knock on Mitch's bedroom door and tell him that he was heading to work. Later that day, Mitch noticed there was something wrong with his sofa bed, so he pulled it open to only see that the mattress was missing. The blankets were also missing. He contacted Christopher. Christopher told him that he had thrown up on the mattress and then thrown it in a dumpster. Christopher also stated that he had ordered Mitch a new one. Yeah, Mitch just kind of chalked that up to maybe... Um, Christopher was embarrassed about the whole thing. And so he didn't press him any further about it. He just, he just kind of thought, oh, he threw up in the bed and he's embarrassed. He's going to buy me a new mattress. I'm not going to ask any follow-up questions. The police would finally locate Christopher Garnier at his place of work. They interviewed him inside an unmarked police cruiser parked in the parking lot of his work. This would be one of the three statements that the police would get from Christopher. We will talk about the other two as we move through the episode. So before we get into this statement, we need to highlight something, okay? Because this investigation was moving very, very fast. By the time they got to Christopher the first time, like things were moving incredibly fast. So obviously Christopher Garnier was a solid lead in the missing person case of Catherine Campbell. But there was some confusion going on that muddied the waters a little bit. The first piece of confusing information came when two family members reported having messages from Catherine on September 11th and 12th. Also, a member of the public claimed to have spotted Catherine at a restaurant at some point after September 11th. These claims were just simply mistakes, and they turned out to be baseless. It was They had misread their text messages or something like that, or it came through Messenger or something like that. But because of this... When the police interviewed Christopher, they did not read him his rights. As he was not a suspect in any crime, as no crime at that point had known to be committed. The officers initially told Christopher that they were conducting a missing persons investigation. They told him the missing person was Catherine Campbell. 
They did not tell Mr. Garnier that they had video from the alehouse of him and Ms. Campbell together, then leaving together between 3 and 3.30 a.m. That information was parsed out to Mr. Garnier as the police confronted him throughout the interview when they believed he was not telling them the truth. Eventually, after denying meeting anyone at the bar, Christopher would basically state that he they had met at the bar, but he didn't know what happened after that. So here are a couple of exchanges from that interview with the police. Um, and I'll, I'll play Chris and you play Constable Allison. Okay, so, okay. So I just want to make sure that we're on the same page here, okay? Sure. Because, you know, if you guys went back and did something, had sex or whatever, hey, you know what, that's... Oh, no, I, I'd tell you if we did, I mean... Okay, because, like, there... Here's the thing, is when I asked you about it first, you kind of like, no, I never talked to any, you know, never talked to anybody. Then I say, okay, well, did you talk to any girls? Well, sort of now. Then, you know, you kissed. Because we know all that, because they got video there. Yeah. Okay. That's the reason why we're asking you that, right? So what I'm wondering is, is why you're not telling us that stuff right up front, Chris? You know, like if you reverse, put me in your position, you in my position or mm-hmm. Scott's position and you say, you're asking somebody and you're saying, okay, why aren't they? And there may be a perfectly good reason why you're not being upfront with us. And that's what we need to find out. And I'm not trying to not, not, be up front. Like, really, I'm trying to recall what happened last night. So here's an exchange from another part of the same interview. Again, I'll be Constable Allison. And I'll be Chris. Because here's the thing, Chris. Like, it's we had the video of you guys leaving the alehouse, okay? You're walking together. Yeah. Okay? So that is just a stone's throw from where you got picked up by the cab. Yeah. Okay. So what happened in between there and when you got picked up by the cab? Uh, I was going to go look for Mitch, I guess. Is it possible the video showed you and her walking in a different direction? Well, it shouldn't, no. So something's not quite adding up here, Chris. You know what I'm saying to you here? Something's not quite adding up as far as like, you know, when you're like, we see the video of you guys leaving together. Yeah. Okay. Do you know where we might be able to find Catherine right now? I have no idea. No idea. Okay. And why should I believe you? Because I'm telling the truth. This interview would eventually be inadmissible at trial because Christopher was never read his rights and was technically not a suspect at this time. But luckily for Halifax police, a mountain, and I'm, I mean a mountain of evidence, will begin to paint a clearer picture of what happened in the early morning hours of September 11th, 2015. But before we get into that, let's take a quick break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we are back. This investigation traveled at a very fast speed as evidence began to reveal itself at almost every turn. This included more CCTV footage that was taken by a business near Mitch's McCulley Street apartment where Christopher was living. This is what the footage showed. So at 4.28 a.m., and keep in mind that Catherine and Christopher left the bar at 3.30, Mm -hmm. so this is just an hour later. Okay. At 4.28 a.m., a white male with dark hair wearing a light-colored shirt and light-colored shorts was seen exiting the back of the McCulley Street building. He walks barefoot towards a business driveway. He appears to be looking at his hands as if he's texting. He looks down the driveway of a nearby business and then returns to the McCulley Street building. At 4.42 a.m., he again walks barefoot down the alley and then is seen a minute later dragging a large green recycling bin back towards the McCulley Street building. At 5.56 a.m., he is again seen pushing the green bin down the alleyway. It has a white mattress on top of it. He then stops and throws the mattress into a backyard. He also stops and throws a small object onto a roof. At 5.29 a.m., he is seen returning to McCulley Street but without the green bin, so half an hour after he's seen walking away with it. At 5.40 a.m., he is seen again, now with a flashlight, moving the mattress out of frame of the camera. A pedestrian also witnessed the man walking down a nearby street with the green bin. The pedestrian was so close that he said he had to move out of the way. A garbage truck driver would also say that he also witnessed a man dragging the bin down the streets in the early morning hours. The man is then seen one last time at 12.57 p.m. in different clothing, surveying the area of the backyard of the McCulley Street building. The man in these videos would be identified by the police based on face, hairline, and tattoos as Christopher Garnier. The cop who identified him was the same cop who had just interviewed him in the unmarked cruiser earlier that day. Yeah, so he had interviewed him in the daytime at his work parking lot, and then this CCTV footage got presented to him later that day, and he was like, wait a second, that's him. So the evidence would continue to mount that something had happened at the McCulley Street address. And now again, I just want to hop in on the timeline here. They left the bar at 3.30 and got into a cab. They met at like 3 a.m., mm-hmm. Got into the cab at 3.30. At 4.20 a.m., he is searching for a green recycling bin and leaving with the green recycling bin. And then by f- not even 5 a.m., he is back again at Macaulay Street. So we're talking an hour and a half. We're talking two hours max since the moment they met. Police would notice what appeared to be drops of blood on the floor of the apartment when they initially interviewed Mitch. They did not tell him they saw it. Instead, they got a search warrant for the premises. 
Police would also search nearby dumpsters where they would find Catherine's Mazda car keys, along with her Good Life Fitness membership fob and a shirt. On a nearby roof, police retrieved a men's silver necklace. This would be the object that he had thrown onto the roof, and it was later identified as a necklace that Brittany had bought for Chris. Oh, his ex bought for him. Yeah, and and he had to get rid of it. Because it was bloody. Yeah, and then he bought another one. Yeah, so he was trying to conceal the fact that he had thrown his necklace away by trying to buy an identical one. Yeah, that way Brittany wouldn't have any questions as to like where he, um, where his necklace had gone that right. she had bought him. So police continued to canvas the area. And as their search spread out around the area of Macaulay Street, they made two more significant discoveries. Just prior to midnight on September 15th, 2015, A Halifax police constable would find a discarded green bin in a wooded area near the McDonald Bridge, a main arterial route between Halifax and Dartmouth. The location of the recycling bin was measured to be a seven-minute walk to Mitch's apartment. It was now that the investigation turned quickly and tragically from a missing person investigation to a homicide investigation. Yeah, police followed what looked like small wheel tracks, like the type of wheels that you would find on the bottom of a green recycling bin. And they followed those tracks from the place where the green bin was to a concrete support pillar underneath the bridge. This was a distance of about 500 feet. Over an embankment surrounded by trees and bushes lay the body of a deceased woman. She was face down and covered with debris. Her body had been dumped down an embankment with a wooden box thrown on top of her. Now, this wooden box was used to catch feral cats underneath the bridge, so it was like a city of Halifax box, box, like a parks box or something. This was apparently an attempt to further conceal the body. The medical examiner would arrive on scene, and based on tattoos and clothing, he would positively identify the body as Constable Catherine Campbell of the Truro Police Department. The cause of death at that time was unknown. So it's important to note that Catherine was reported missing on the 14th, and this is now just the 15th. So within 24 hours, the police have really um, galvanized and, and, and mobilized themselves. And honed to, in on Christopher. Yeah, and to solve, solve this situation. Mm-hmm. So police had already begun to run surveillance on Christopher. Christopher had moved back in with his girlfriend, Brittany, the one he had broken up with, causing him to sleep on Mitch's couch. They'd only broken up for a day, and that day, of course, being the day he met Catherine at the alehouse. Earlier on the day the body was discovered, police witnessed Christopher driving in a red Pontiac Grand Prix. He met with Mitch in the parking lot of a Leon's furniture store where they talked for 17 minutes. At around the time police were beginning to find the green bin and tragically Catherine's body, the surveillance team watched Christopher leave his home. He got into his girlfriend's white 2009 Ford Edge. Police then observed Christopher drive by the McCulley Street apartment and then begin to make his way towards the McDonald Bridge. Yeah, in fact, the surveillance team had to radio ahead to the search team that Christopher was on his way to the area where the body was found. Apparently, they had to scramble and hide in anticipation of his arrival. Keep in mind, they had like searchlights set up Mm -hmm. and teams and stuff like that. So it's believed that the heavy police presence in the area spooked Christopher, so he headed back towards his home. But for Christopher, the gig was up. 
At 1.19 a.m. on September 16th, basically an hour after her body was discovered, police arrested Christopher Garnier for the murder of Constable Catherine Campbell. Inside the vehicle Christopher was driving, police observed a tarp, a rope, blankets, and bags. Yeah, it's believed that those bags had, like, his clothing and belongings inside of them. Christopher Garnier also had his passport with him. So as we mentioned earlier, the police had already interviewed Christopher in the back of the police cruiser earlier that day. However, since he was never read his rights, anything he said in that interview was inadmissible at court. But Christopher would go on to make two more statements with regards to his involvement in the murder of Catherine Campbell. The first of those two statements would be in a nine and a half hour interview with the police. The second of those statements would be to an undercover officer in his jail cell. So let's take a look at the police interview first. Police would arrest Garnier at 1.19 a.m. It should be noted that he did seek and speak with a lawyer between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. His interview would commence at 1 p.m. As we said, it would last over nine hours. So he's arrested at 1.30 a.m. He speaks to a lawyer at 3.4. They let him go to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and then they... Uh, bring him up for the big interview, starts at 1 o'clock. Before and during the interview, Christopher was given meals and access to water. He did not appear overly tired or mistreated in any way. So this was a classic cop interview. Um, and they actually, they did use the read technique, uh, which if you've listened to True Crime Podcasts, you know what that is. Um, if you've watched Making a Murderer, you know what that is. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty tough guy technique for drawing out confessions from people but they did the classic thing where they kept on laying out evidence in front of him mm -hmm. and so i'm going to give you a list here of the evidence that they presented for christopher and i actually took some things out because the list was so long they presented to him photographs of Catherine campbell in her police uniform photographs of Catherine campbell in her firefighter uniform a photograph of her air apostle t-shirt that he had thrown in the dumpster a photograph of Catherine Campbell in the elevator of her apartment taken on surveillance video on her way out to the club. A photograph of Catherine Campbell leaving her apartment building taken from the surveillance camera same night. Six pages of photographs of text messages between Christopher Garnier and Mitch DeVoe. A photograph of Catherine Campbell in her apartment elevator coming home from work wearing her police uniform. A photograph of the dumpster near McCulley Street. Photograph of her keys with her Good Life Fitness tag. A photograph of the crime scene where Catherine Campbell was found. A photograph of the scene where the green bin was found. A photograph of Catherine Campbell post-mortem. And a photograph of Catherine Campbell at the crime scene. A video clip of Christopher dragging the green bin down the alleyway. And video and audio of the interview with Brittany Francis. They had actually brought Brittany in already for an interview. Right. Can you imagine being him sitting there and then being like, okay, okay, okay. And then finally they slapped down the video of you dragging that green bin. So Chris would repeatedly say that he didn't remember things and had indicated more than once that he didn't want to talk, but he would provide some details. Here is an excerpt from the interview. Okay. So you'll play Constable Allison again and I'll, I'll read Chris, Chris's words. Appreciate you saying you couldn't remember what happened when you got back, how you got back or whatever, to the house. I don't even remember most of the conversation when we were at the alehouse. I remember being by the front doors. I remember Mitch was down by the bar. 
I went to talk to him and then that was the last time I seen him. I can't remember who approached who or how many times we went outside. I know we went outside. I was talking to one of the other workers there. I'm not sure what time we got in a cab. I don't remember getting in the cab. I don't even remember how we got inside, but I mean, it must have been unlocked because I don't even have a key on me. And then I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I remember her being on the bed or the pullout and she was bleeding. I don't remember what happened. Where was she bleeding from? I think her nose. When you say, keep going, what do you mean by the bleeding? Like, she she was bleeding from her nose, I think. Maybe it was all over her face. That's how I know she wasn't alive when she went in the bin, because I could hear her take her last breaths. When she was on the couch, you could hear her take her last breaths? Shakes his head, yes. Where were you when this... When this happened, when you were you right beside her or were you on top of her or I, I was in the doorway. Throughout the interview, Christopher did express remorse for what he did. Here is an exchange where he apologizes for what happened. Chris Chris, what kind of what would you want to say to Catherine's family? I'm sorry. I know you would. Do you think if I got you a pen and a piece of paper you could write something out? You could, if you want to, give them something they could see? To the family or or you don't i mean that's i'm thinking would you rather just through not not right now but but i'd like to okay okay fair enough i i remember i remember watching it on the news and and on my phone i i couldn't stop watching it i couldn't figure out why the fuck i would do something like that i would never do something like that you were saying chris this is not you bud no this is not you bud I'm I'm sorry for taking so long to tell you. He would also profess his love for his girlfriend, Brittany, during the interview and worry about how this was going to hurt his family. He cried on and off during the course of the interview. As the interview progressed, Christopher would admit to the following points. That he punched downward into Miss Campbell's face twice. That his punches were fast. That he guessed her nose was bleeding that he did not think Miss Campbell moved much from where she was originally after he punched her and was not sure if she was alert after that, that he then put his hands around her neck with his thumbs together while he was standing over her, that she was choking while he was doing this, that she was not struggling very much while he was choking her, that he removed his hands from her neck when she was gasping, and that he does not know what he was feeling when he did this, but by the time he thought about it, it was already done. Unbelievable. So police would eventually return Chris to the cells around 11 p.m. In his cell waiting was a new cellmate that Christopher would actually recognize. You see, on his way to jail during the drive to the Lower Sackville Police Detachment, the police contrived an undercover operation whereby they made it appear that a man, who was actually a, an undercover police officer, was being arrested on the road. So the vehicle that was transporting Christopher Garnier slowed down as they passed this takedown and they had a whole bunch of co like police cars set up so it looked mm -hmm. like it was a big deal. And then he was in a, what I understand, it, he was in a procession of six cars. And so those six cars passed by 
this guy getting arrested on the highway or whatever. And he was surrounded by a bunch of cars. So they made a big show of it. So Christopher could see this guy getting arrested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that man was actually placed in Christopher Garnier's jail cell. So the following is an excerpt from what the court refers to as statement number three. After building a rapport with the undercover police officer, he would make some incriminating statements. The undercover cop would ask how Christopher got into the situation. Yeah, so in this one, you can read the undercover operator's lines and I'll read Chris Garnier's lines. How? Uh, just fucking shitty series of events. Yeah, that's what usually fucking gets you, man. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, just fucking, I'll regret it for the rest of my life, but I can't change it. A good lawyer might be able to get you fucking out. Yeah, well, I don't think I'll be getting out. It'll be, you know, best if, you know... I take the poison sort of thing. Oh, yeah? What do you mean by that? 10 years. Could be 15 years. 15 years, bud? That's serious fucking shit, bud. I had some friends that did major time like that. Yeah. Hopefully you covered your fucking tracks, bud. That's all I gotta say, you know what I mean? Hopefully you fucking took care of some things. As long as my parents are, you know, acting... Yeah, yeah. We've all done fucking stupid shit, bud. Do them every weekend, usually, when I go down fucking town. Pick up some fucking broad. But like I said, if you're looking at some major fucking time like that... Just a split second. Yeah? Changes everything. So, we have three statements in total. But the first one was inadmissible. And the court deemed that any statements to the undercover were also inadmissible. So, the only statement used in court were from the nine-hour police interview. So let's get into the trial, the defense, and the conclusion of this episode after a quick break. And we are back. So the trial would begin and the evidence against Christopher was overwhelming. Here's a quote from a CBC article about some of the forensic evidence alone. Dr. Gregory Litzenberger told a Nova Scotia Supreme Court jury that he tested various blood swabs taken by police at the apartment on McCulley Street and established several matched Campbell's DNA. Tests on some fingernail clippings taken from Campbell during the autopsy on her body revealed Campbell's blood. Other fingernail clippings showed Campbell and Garnier's DNA. He testified the DNA was most likely transferred by friction, such as scratching. Litzenberger noted that he did not find any semen on Campbell's underwear or her body. Garnier has told police in videotape statement that he does not believe that they had sex after they met at the Halifax bar and returned to the apartment. The jury also heard from a blood spatter expert, RCMP Sergeant Adrian Butler, who testified he examined the McCulley Street apartment. He said some sort of force caused blood to fly through the air and land on the speaker, but he could not say how much force was applied. Six spatter stains were found on the floor of the apartment hallway, and at least 26 small spatter stains in one section of the floor. Spatter stains found on the wall appeared to have been caused by blood droplets traveling downward and hitting the wall. He noted other stains, including on the wheel of an automatic vacuum that appeared to have rolled through blood. There was blood on the television that was a contact stain, but he could not say for certain how it got there. 
The jury also heard from a digital forensics and data recovery expert. He said he analyzed the computer seized during the police investigation, and this is Christopher Garnier's computer. The expert said he checked the computer's browser history to see if anyone had searched for Catherine Campbell, but found nothing. He noted someone had searched for information on the side effects of Ciprolex, an antidepressant Garnier had admitted to taking. The queries were for Ciprolex and alcohol together, Ciprolex and violence, and Ciprolex and memory loss. These searches were made on September 15, 2015, about four days after Campbell's alleged murder. Sounds like somebody was trying to make a defense for himself. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's, I read it two ways. I read that, and then I also, like, I am in no way justifying what this guy did, but the, in reading all of his interviews, I don't know what he knows. I don't know if he knows what happened. I mean, he knows what happened. Don't get me wrong. The guy's guilty. But there were some things in the interview where I thought to myself, is this guy playing a game that he doesn't remember? Or does he straight up not remember? Well, I've been on Ciprolex since 2016, and it clearly states on the bottle to not mix with alcohol. Yeah. Because you're going to get fucked up, like too fucked up if yeah. you're taking, because it's a depressant, right? And so is alcohol. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you shouldn't mix any of those things. And, and I do want to really be clear here. I'm not justifying at all uh, no. what Christopher Garnier did. I just wondered when I read his interviews if if he really does remember everything because like they were like clearly very shit-faced that night. Well, 99% of people can get shit-faced and not kill someone, so. 100%. So the rest of the evidence at the trial is almost too extensive to mention in one episode of a podcast. It was a solid investigation by law enforcement and a solid presentation by the Crown Prosecutor. So the defense would present its case. This is a summary of it, according to Global News. Unlike the Crown, who called nearly 40 witnesses, the defense chose to have just four people give testimony. In his opening address to court, defense lawyer Joel Pink called Catherine Campbell's death an accident. Pink said Campbell died as the result of a consensual sex act or erotic asphyxiation that unfortunately went wrong. He said Campbell died during rough sex, which was initiated by Catherine. The first witness to take the stand was Garnier, who testified on his own behalf. And this is so rare. Rare. Garnier told the court that on September 10th, 2015, he went to stay with his friend Mitch DeVoe after he and his girlfriend Brittany had broken up. Garnier said that after drinking and smoking marijuana with DeVoe, they decided to go downtown. Garnier said he met Campbell at the Halifax Alehouse and the pair went back to DeVoe's apartment, which was located at 5714 McCulley Street. Once there, Garnier says he and Campbell started kissing and she asked him if he had ever been into domination, something Garnier said took him off guard. Garnier says the pair kept kissing in the hallway when Campbell asked him to choke her. He says he placed both hands on her neck for about 30 seconds. If she ever resisted, I would have stopped, he told the jury. Garnier testified the pair then made their way to a pull-out sofa in the den of the apartment. Once there, Garnier says he put his arm on Campbell's neck and slapped her quickly three times at her request. Garnier says he was embarrassed and didn't look at Campbell's face while he slapped her. Shortly after that, Garnier says he felt blood on him and ran to the bathroom to get a towel. When he came back, Campbell hadn't moved. Garnier told the court 
that he grabbed Campbell's shoulders and shook her before hearing a gasp and moving back towards the doorway of the room. Garnier says he was panicked. His vision was blurry and he was sick to his stomach. He recalled folding the mattress from the pull-out couch and heading to the pillars under the McDonald Bridge, but did not recall placing Campbell in a green bin or disposing of her body. Garnier says he remembers waking up in the Macaulay Street apartment, getting his stuff, and going to his father's house. Later that evening, he and his girlfriend got back together. Garnier testified that he had a sick feeling in his stomach and tried to sleep in the days that followed, but had nightmares. Garnier said he drove around the Macaulay Street apartment to the bridge about a dozen times, trying to put together his memories. Other witnesses included a psychiatrist who spoke about the risks of erotic asphyxia and also testified about automatism, which is considered a rare legal defense involving a person being in a state of impaired consciousness, in this case, drunk. Another witness was a police trainer who they asked if Catherine had ever been trained on how to use chokeholds and self-defense moves. I didn't really understand why they called this witness. But the final witness was a former sexual partner of Catherine Campbell who was expected to testify that she liked rough sex. Now, this this guy was a hero. Like, he got pulled in to this whole case. Um, it was actually his own fault because when he, – he was the guy that she was messaging earlier that night. Mm-hmm. And so he needed to clear himself. And – so he got in touch with the Halifax police. And so they, the defense team pull him in as the classic crappy defense team move where they try to pull out her sexual partners into the history. Or like her sexual preferences as like, oh, yep. well, this was her fault because she liked something. Yeah. And taboo. so, and this guy was like, he was like, no, that that's not what was going on. Like they had expected him to say like, oh yeah, she liked rough sex or whatever. But the man actually wouldn't take the bait. Um, And he would not state that Catherine liked rough sex. He would instead state that once or twice they had play wrestled after sex and they were both like partially clothed. After. And also, what does it have to do with anything? Yeah. So let's take a moment here. The defense team were trying to make this murder Catherine's fault. As people who research murders a lot, we have to say that this is the fourth case in the last while we've come across where a man murders a woman and then somebody tries to paint it as sex gone wrong this defense and this whole idea is such a false narrative consensual rough or alternative sex doesn't result in a dead person it doesn't result in blood spatter and bloody noses it doesn't result in someone being strangled for two to six minutes while they die and it doesn't result in a body being dumped under a bridge yeah and thankfully juries don't see it that way either and you know we we have seen this time and time again with the Natsumi Kogawa case mm-hmm. and stuff like that, where the 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 person who lives gets to try to tell the story. Yeah, they get to shape the entire narrative. The, the entire narrative. The, like, yeah. there's no way Natsumi Kogawa was physically or any way interested in William Schneider. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets to say, yeah, we were having sex and it was an accident. Mm-hmm. Like, how many... How do these guys believe that that it was just we were having sex and then it was an accident? Like, and how do they expect us to believe it? Like, there is a reason why we put his entire defense into this episode. And it wasn't to actually paint his defense as as viable. It was to show how absolutely ridiculous of a defense it was. So after 18 days 
of pretrial motions and five weeks of a trial, on December 21st, 2017, at approximately 1.55 p.m., a jury convicted Christopher Garnier of second-degree murder of Catherine Campbell and of improperly interfering with the human remains of Catherine Campbell. The judge would state the following at sentencing. The imposition of life imprisonment already carries with it a significant element of denunciation and general deterrence. Mr. Garnier may never be released on parole. He may spend the rest of his life in prison. However, the National Parole Board might eventually determine that he can return to society. If the parole board does determine that Mr. Garnier can leave prison, he will be subject to strict conditions and supervision. Even then, that supervision and those strict conditions would be in place for the rest of his life. Mr. Garnier has been sentenced to life in prison. I set his parole ineligibility at 13 and a half years. That he must serve 13 and a half years before he can apply for parole. That is not the date he gets parole. It is merely the date he can start applying for parole. As discussed, that 13 and a half year time frame starts on the date of his arrest, September 16th, 2015. But it does not include the time he spent released on bail, nor does it include the time he spent in custody in relation to the breach allegation. Yeah, he had breached his parole. They knocked on his family's door and he wasn't there when he was supposed to be there. There was a whole bunch of other side stuff that happened during the course of this trial that uh, we didn't put into the episode. The judge goes on to say, In imposing this sentence, I ask him to keep in mind the words of Justice Beveridge in Hawkins, that he will be subject to a sentence of imprisonment forever. He may never be released on parole. So at the end of the hearing, Garnier stood up and unfolded a piece of paper from his pocket. He apologized to Catherine Campbell's family and friends, saying he knows there's nothing he can do to ease their pain. Here's his quote from that piece of paper. I never intended for this to happen, but my actions contributed to Catherine's death, and I accept responsibility for that. I have a hard time understanding why I did what I did and why I did what I did afterwards, and I still can't remember most of those actions. I'm disgusted by them. I'm sorry every day for the pain I've caused you to go through. And I hope you can one day forgive me. In a victim impact statement, Catherine's mother said the following. As we struggle to deal with our loss, we know one thing. There will be no forgiveness. None. How do you put into words how our lives were forever changed by the death of our child? You cannot even imagine unless you've been there yourself. The disbelief. The heartache. The emptiness, sorrow, nightmares, tears, and the sense of loss consuming. Catherine was the victim, and every day we walked into this courtroom, she was victimized over and over again. We were constantly reminded of the accused rights. But what have we seen of the victim's rights? It is our family that has been given the life sentence with no chance of parole. The life of the late Constable Catherine Campbell was celebrated with the inaugural Catherine Campbell Walk on December 4, 2016. Campbell's family planned for the walk to take part during the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, which takes place between November 25th and December 10th. 
The event also took place two days prior to the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. Catherine's aunt stated that, Due to the nature of Campbell's death, it was fitting to have the walk take place during the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. Her aunt went on to say, Anyone can experience this. It might make someone in a bad situation think, Oh, I'm not alone, and let them know that people are willing to help. She met a lot of women who were victims of violence, and she's speaking about Catherine here. She would help out anyone. If you called her, she would help out with anything, organizing events or whatever, as long as it was a good cause. In July of this year, 2020, Christopher Garnier filed and lost an appeal to overturn his murder conviction. Yeah, so this brings us to the end of the episode. And as we stated at the start of this episode, Constable Catherine Campbell was a respected and cherished member of our society and our country. And the world is a bit darker without her. As always, we thank you for joining us. We will have a new episode out for you in two weeks. Please tell a friend about True North True Crime. And until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, you guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.